Our reading this morning is from John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the Gospel of Christ. Let me um, pray and we'll think about the things that uh, Chris read out to us from John 18. Heavenly Father, as we gather together this morning, I'm sure uh, each of us is going through our own things in life. We've come this morning with our, our own thoughts in our minds and feelings in our hearts. We're facing different circumstances. We thank you for the wonderful things that we've sung of, your deep love, the cross of Christ, the fact that you're our shepherd, and yet so often in our lives we probably don't feel like those are true. We don't, or we feel that the, the truth of it may be distant from us. Father, as we spend the next few minutes pausing on this uh, really important time in your son's life, I pray that you might use it to give us a deeper understanding of who you are and that that knowledge and the confidence that flows from that may really impact the way we live our lives no matter what we're facing. So please work amongst us and within us this morning by your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things have troubled me over the last few weeks in our children's slots. Last week, Oliver Preston took a children's slot and felt the need to publicly point out that I got all the questions wrong in the quiz. Uh, but perhaps worse than that, two weeks ago, Lee Grayling publicly up the front here acknowledged that she's never seen a Star Wars movie. <laughs> I feel that we've let you down as a staff team, St Stephen's. And I promise you this morning that we will do better when we take on staff. As a way of making up for uh, Lee, 
I don't even know what to say about it really. I, I thought, well, the only way to do it is to give a Star Wars illustration this morning, so I'm going to. Lee, listen to this and learn. If you've seen the original Star Wars movie, which is number four in the series, but if you remember it was the first one made, then I'm sure you'll remember the scene when the old Jedi Knight, Ben Kenobi or Obi-Wan Kenobi, runs into Darth Vader. Even Lee's heard of Darth Vader, the big baddie. It's a very dramatic scene when they meet. You've got these two enemies clash with each other. As a young child, I can still remember it was the first lightsaber fight I'd ever ever seen. But in the end... Darth Vader won. I can still feel my sadness and shock as a young boy watching the movie as the noble Obi-Wan was struck down by Vader and all was left, if you remember the scene, was his robes lying in a heap on the floor. Very powerful stuff. Lee. (laughs) Darth had won. Or had Darth won? Something puzzled me as a young boy watching this, and it was the words and actions of Ben Kenobi just before Darth, let's call him Darth, just before Darth rained down the final blow. Obi-Wan looked at him and said, You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And then he raised his lightsaber up so that he made no effort to defend himself and he allowed Darth Vader to strike him down. And I remember thinking to myself as a boy when I saw it, what's going on here? There's something more than meets the eye happening at this moment. I didn't know what it was. I was still gutted and worried about what that meant for the future of Luke and the future of the whole galaxy that was far, far away. But things were obviously not as they appeared. I'd like to suggest that what goes on in the passage that Chris read to us a little while ago is something like this. Minus the lightsabers, minus the asthmatic breathing and those kind of things. But there's more going on here than first meets the eye. At a superficial level, when you're watching Star Wars, you see Obi-Wan, this kind of hero, struck down and it looks bleak. At first reading of John chapter 18, the first few verses there, I don't know what it's headed in your Bible. In my Bible, it's headed the arrest of Jesus. And you see what happens and you could think, oh my goodness, this is bleak. But under the surface, more is happening. And so I want to uh, take a, a little look at the passage in a few more de- with a few more details <clears throat> and then focus on one thing, one thing which I'm convinced John the Gospel writer wants us to see and focus on and hold in our head and in our hearts more than anything else in these few verses. Now last week we saw the end of the farewell discourse. Uh, which Jeff and James and, uh, and I have been speaking on over these weeks, this, this period of time where Jesus met with his disciples on the night of his arrest, just before his death. And we saw all these things that Jesus has been teaching to his disciples. And we saw last week that finish as Jesus prayed. That wraps up the farewell discourse. And we saw Jesus pray that he would be glorified so his father would be glorified. We saw that Jesus prayed for his disciples that they would be in the world but not of the world and protected by, uh, by their father. Uh, and then he prayed not just for the 11 disciples in the room with him but for all that would become disciples through them, that's you and I. He prayed for unity for us. Well, that finished the farewell discourse. And so today, the narrative starts up again in John's Gospel. Chapter 18, we're back into the story. And we pick it up with Jesus leaving with his disciples and crossing the Kidron Valley. 
Jesus and the disciples, if you have a look at the verses behind me, go into an olive grove on the other side of the valley. And then in verse 2, we're told that Judas, who'd left them at the beginning of this uh, farewell discourse, Judas the betrayer, knowing that this was a favourite spot of Jesus, led a large group there. He guides the group, obviously, to capture Jesus. Verse 3, we're told that there was a detachment of soldiers and there were some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Important to notice there, in other words, there's both Jew and Gentile here. Both Jew and Gentile are implicated in the arrest of the Son of God. The soldiers could only have been Romans, uh, Gentiles. The officials could only have been Jews. And so John, who's writing this, is making clear the whole world is complicit in the death of Jesus. The Son of God is being taken to be put to death by both Jew and Gentile. The world is guilty of this. Well, Jesus, verse 4, goes out to them and asks who they want. Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. And then comes something extraordinary. When Jesus says, I am he, we're told that the, the whole group, the soldiers, the officials, all these bigwigs, draw back and fell to the ground. Bizarre, isn't it? You can easily miss it when you read through John 18. What caused it? Why did they draw back and fall to the ground? Now, when Jesus speaks here, he literally, in the Greek, says what? I am. It, there is no he. We've written in he so that it kind of makes more sense in terms of English grammar. But literally, Jesus just said, I am. And that's very significant. I am, as you'll remember, was the name that God called himself back in Exodus at the burning bush with Moses. When Moses said, who are you? God called himself, I am. So that gives a different perspective on what's going, here, going on here. I read through some of the commentaries during the week to see what other people think has happened here as they all draw back and fall down. And some people think that Jesus here was declaring himself as God, so he said, I am, and that the people there, the group, were so in awe of that and respectful of that that they withdrew and prostrated themselves on the ground. Hands up if you're convinced by that. It's probably, I don't think it's that convincing. I'm not sure the Roman soldiers were that impressed and a Hebrew person saying that. I'm not sure that the Jewish <coughs> religious leaders would have been that impressed in that happening. I think it's much more likely that when Jesus, as God the Son, spoke, I am, there was such a power and such an authority in what he said that something supernatural happened that stopped them in their tracks for a moment. Power and authority spoken by the Son of God and then bam. That's what happens. Well, whatever exactly happened, in verse 7, we go through the scene again because they kind of pick themselves back up. Jesus asks again who they want. The group respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus now adds a few more words there, and I think it's because he lessens the power. He lessens the power and authority, so he won't knock them over again. Then in verse 8, Jesus replies, If you're looking for me, then let these men go about his disciples. And then John writes, this happens so that the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus is ensuring here that his disciples will be safe, which exactly, precisely fulfills his prayer from last week. The good shepherd will not allow any of his sheep to be lost. And that's what happens. But one of the sheep is Peter. 
Simon Peter in verse 10 does what Simon Peter tends to do. He takes things into his own hands and he draws his sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's right ear. Now, I started this sermon this morning talking about lightsabers and dazzling displays of swordsmanship and that kind of thing. I don't think that's what happened here. I don't think Peter was so kind of brilliant with the thrust and the parry and the bl- that he sliced off an ear perfectly to be a warning to everyone there. I think Peter probably just took a huge whack and that's kind of what happened. I could be wrong. And when I meet Peter, I'll apologise if, uh, if I was wrong. But Peter, for the right reasons, has yet again done the wrong thing. He hasn't yet learned that he can't do anything for Jesus that in fact he needs Jesus to do something for him. And Jesus is in the process of doing it right now, and Peter's still kind of doing it. Although you always got to love Peter, don't you? Because he always wants to do something for Jesus. But Jesus stops Peter in verse 11 with these very important words. Put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup... The Father has given me. Very important words. This is not the only place we read of Jesus speaking of the cup the Father has given him. Do you remember at the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but your will be done. What does Jesus mean when he speaks about the cup? Because he uses it both times here just before his death. Well, he's using Old Testament imagery. And we haven't got time to look up all the references this morning, but you could go to nearly all the major prophets and you will find the cup of the Lord being used as to, to create imagery in the Old Testament prophets in two opposite ways. Sometimes the cup is the cup of God's blessing. Sometimes the cup is the cup of God's wrath. And it's context that makes it clear which is which. Here, it's clearly talking about the wrath of God. Jesus knew that when he went to the cross, he was going to take the sin of the world upon himself. All the wrong things that you and I have done, he was going to take upon himself. And with that, he was going to take the punishment that it deserves. He was going to take the wrath of the Father, the punishment of God. He was going to take the cup the Father has given him. This was the only way he could be forgiven. This is how you know the cross had to happen. Because when he said... Take this cup from me, yet not my will but your will be done. If there was any other way for people to be saved, any other way for you and I to be forgiven and made the children of God, then it would have been taken then. But the cup had to be taken. The son had to receive the cup that we caused. He had to receive it on our behalf so that we might be rescued. And so he says to Peter here, don't fight this, Peter. This is what is meant to happen. I'm going to do exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to drink the cup from my father. And you'll be blessed because of it. And it's at this point that in verse 12, the crowd finally succeed in arresting Jesus. We're told they tied him up and they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Well, there's the passage in a little bit more detail. This is the so-called arrest of Jesus. But what I want us to focus on for the remaining few minutes this morning is the topic of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. 
Now, as soon as I say that, you may have a couple of different uh, reactions. One, you might say, what does the sovereignty of God mean? Uh, Some of you may go, oh, that's a theological term. Theology is a bit kind of boring and uh, not practical. I want things that will affect my life and that uh, can hit me. No, no, no. Sovereignty of God means that God is in charge over everything. And just think about that for a moment. The sovereignty of God means God is in charge of everything. Nothing happens without his permission and authority. He's in charge of it all. And it is a theological topic. Uh, And sometimes people go, well, let's not not get bogged down in theological things. Head knowledge, that's not what I'm after. I want things that are useful for my life. I don't just want theory, I want practical things. If you've ever thought that way, can I politely ask you to please stop thinking that way? Theology, which is just knowledge of God, is always practical. The better you know your heavenly Father, the better you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the the outworkings of that in your life will become more and more significant. And the sovereignty of God is what we see in this passage. It's what John wants us to see in it, and it is utterly practical for our lives, and I want us to know that this morning. Let me show it you in the passage first. Let me explain why I would say that John, this is the theme that he wants us to take from these few verses. We're supposed to read this passage and realize it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. See, who in these verses should be in control? Quite clearly, from a worldly point of view, a realistic point of view, Judas and the crowd should be in control. Look again how they're described in verse 3. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. We're supposed to be impressed by the size and the preparation of this group. They're large. There's lots of them. They're prepared. They've got torches. They're armed. They've got weapons. It's a crowd of people, of soldiers and leaders. The arrest of one man, even with 11 friends, should be no problem whatsoever for this huge group. Maybe it would have been a problem if they'd attempted to get Jesus in daylight when he had other followers around and supporters who may have turned against them, but they've come at night, deliberately. So this is overkill. They've got a group that could easily take these guys They've got far more than they need. It would be like using a whole can of bug spray on one ant. You don't need that much. And yet quite clearly when you read through the verses, they're not in control. Did you pick that up as Chris read it? At every point, in every situation, at every turn, who's in control? Who's got the upper hand? Jesus, every time. In verse 4, it's Jesus that takes the initiative. He goes out to them. He's not taken by surprise. He's not cowering, frightened in a corner. He goes out to them. In verse 4, John tells us specifically, Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He's not taken by surprise in any of this. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen to him. Then in verse 4, it's Jesus that speaks first. He makes them respond to him rather than the other way around. He's still got the upper hand. Who is it you want? And then, verse 6, I think, makes everything clear. They draw back and they fall to the ground because of the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a, a pathetic martyr here. He's not a helpless victim here. Nor is he a courageous hero finally overcome by the unknown betrayal of a close friend and the sheer number and power of opponents sent out to capture him. Now, he's the one who says... 
I am, and they all fall at his feet. The only reason that Jesus is arrested in verse 12 and tied up is because Jesus allows it to be so. The only reason any of this occurs is because Jesus voluntarily, deliberately, purposefully allowed himself to be arrested and put to death to drink the cup the Father had given him. This crowd of soldiers and officials and their weapons and lanterns are shown to be powerless before him, pathetic before him. The only reason they're successful in their mission is because he allows it. And he carries on showing that he's in control in the rest of the verses. He makes them repeat themselves. I hate it when people make me repeat myself. Well, he makes them repeat himself because he's in charge. Sorry, what do you want? Oh, okay. He ensures the safety of his disciples. He shouldn't be able to decide that the disciples are going to be protected, but he does. There's not even a question that Jesus' disciples will be safe because he will not lose any the Father has given to him. In verse 9, it's fulfilling his own words, again showing how much in control he is. And in verse 11, as we've seen, the whole situation is playing out this way because Jesus is going to willingly drink the cup his Father has given him. It's only then, verse 12, that Jesus is arrested. Do you see the whole thing is clear in these verses? He's only arrested because he permits it, because he allows it. Like Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. It happens because he allows it. It looks as if one thing's happening, but actually something else is happening. Things are not as they first appear. Things are not as they seem with their eyes. Because God is in charge here, even though it looks from a worldly perspective that things are failing, that Jesus is lost, that defeat is imminent, that things have gone wrong. No, no, no. God is in charge working out his plans and purposes. He is sovereign. That's the main theme of these verses. And I want us to know that he's sovereign as Christians this morning. He is in charge of everything. He is the Lord over all. Nothing is outside his control and authority. Now, as soon as I say that, do you see why the sovereignty of God is so practical for our lives? Because it means that whatever you're going through right now, it's not an accident and you're not spinning out of control. You're in the Lord's hands. Nothing in our lives is outside his sovereignty. He's in charge of everything, from the big things to the little things, from the the huge events that we go through to the parking space we're looking for, in the lives of believers and non-believers, and, although this is harder for us to grasp and, and accept sometimes, in the good and in the bad. Nothing is outside God's control. Nothing is lost. There are no mistakes And as we face difficult situations in particular, and trying times in particular, we need to remember that. Things are not always what they appear. There may be more going on than what we see with our eyes. Now, I don't want to pretend at all this morning that knowing that makes life easy and takes away all the questions. It adds questions. There's no doubt about that. Why, God, are you allowing this? Why are you letting me go through this, Lord? What is going on here? Where's the end game? I'm not here to pretend that there are answers to some of those questions. You and I are not God. We don't see everything from his all-encompassing perspective. 
seeing the whole picture, the whole situation. And so sometimes we're left with the questions, why, Lord? But when you're in a situation like that and you're asking why, Lord, I want you to ask another question. Can you trust the Lord? Is he trustworthy? Can you trust him even when it hurts? Can you trust him even when the tears are flowing and the pain is so sharp you can feel it? Can you trust him to know what's best, to do right and to hold on to you? Can you trust him that he's your heavenly father who's working all things out for your good in the end? And I want to say this morning you can. And this passage shows us that you can. There's only one reason the son takes the cup and that's because of the father's love for us. And even though we may not understand all the things that we're going through right now in this world, take a step back, look at what he's done in the Son, and know that he loves you and you're in his hand and he's in control. Make no mistake about it, although it doesn't take away the questions, things are infinitely worse if God is not sovereign. Think about that for a moment. If he's not in charge of all things... If he's not in control of everything, think about what it means. It means that everything could go wrong in the end. His plans and purposes may never materialize, never be fulfilled. A mistake here that he hadn't banked on, an unforeseen circumstance there that he hadn't thought would happen, a person he thought might do this not doing it, or a person he never imagined would do that but did do it, and suddenly all his plans and purposes are thwarted. It might mean that Satan's got some master plan that God never really considered and he's outflanked and loses in the end. And heaven and the new creation may never materialize. If you've got a God like that, you can have no confidence, no assurance, no certainty. The only thing we could have is a blind, kind of wishful pie in the sky, vain hope that maybe, just maybe, if things go well and the wind blows the right way, maybe things will be okay in the end. If you think that way, you've got a very small God. I studied classics uh, at uh, school and uh, uni, and what you've got there is Greek gods and Roman gods. It always used to blow me away that in in those kind of mythological, the humans were more important than the gods. (laughs) The gods were dependent on the humans doing the right, all those sorts of things. You've got a God who's reliant on you and I doing the right thing, otherwise it might all fail. A God that hopes that certain events will turn out the way he wants or is reliant on circumstances going the way that he wishes. That is not a God worth following. It's a small God. And you'd never have any certainty or confidence. But that's not our God. We may not always be able to understand what our God is doing in the day-to-day details of life and sometimes in the tragic things that you and I face, but the whole scriptures remind us over and over and over again, he is in charge and you can trust him. You may know what it's like when you've found a person in life that you trust in certain areas. They're just really good or really skilled or you get a lot of confidence from it. You've got a heavenly father you can 100% trust him, even when you can't understand. There's not a sparrow that falls without him knowing. He knows every hair on your head. Everything is under his lordship. And so we can be sure, ultimately confident and certain, even in the midst of those questions. But if you take away God's sovereignty, 
Not only do you make him out to be a liar himself, you're left with nothing but a small, pathetic God and a a vain hope for the future. So it is supremely practical for our lives, the theology of the sovereignty of God, because it means you're in his hands. It means you can have confidence. It means that you're following the one who can bring even good from evil. When you go through those times when you're asking why, why have I slipped up in this area area again? Why are my children behaving in this way? Where am I going in life? Why am I single? Why is my marriage so, so difficult? Why did you allow him to die? Remember God is sovereign. Remember his plans and purposes will be worked out. And remember, we can't see what he's doing. We can fear that Darth Vader's won. We can see the robes on the floor in the crumpled heap and think that that's the end and that's the whole. But friends, they're not always, things are not always as they appear. God is in control. And so ask yourself, what kind of God do you follow? One who's shown himself to be trustworthy, dedicated to our ultimate good, given his son, the cup to drink so that you and I might be his children and then trust him. In a worldly perspective, the arrest of Jesus here was the worst possible news for Jesus' disciples. But God used what the crowd purposed for evil for good because it was through this arrest and then through his death that followed that God made those disciples children of him. It looked to all intents and purposes like failure, but it was God's victory. We can't always see what the Lord is doing when we're in the midst of it. Sometimes you only see it by hindsight. Sometimes you don't even see it in hindsight. But make no mistake about it, the Lord is in charge even when it doesn't appear like it. And so when things feel to you like they may be spinning out of control, or you don't know what to hold on to, I'm telling you to hold on to, grab on to the fact that everything is in the Lord's hands, including you, and know that. Trust him. He's in charge whether we can understand what he's doing or not. Trust him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your son who took the cup for us. And Father, I pray this morning that you would give us even more confidence in your sovereignty. And for those of us for whom there are so many questions at the moment because of circumstances we're facing or going through, I pray that in your gentleness, uh, in your kindness, by your spirit, give give us even more an awareness of what it means to be your children in your hands, what it is to have you as our Father, and give us the ability to trust you even in the midst of questions. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that you're not a small God. And we thank you that we are your children. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.